Take your Bibles out and turn with me to Revelation 21 and 22. Now, folks, Lord willing, we're going to try this morning to finish up, okay? Got a lot of ground to cover. And so as I, as I read the text this morning, listen carefully because in many instances... Uh, we won't come back and, and read a verse again. I'll simply refer to verse 11 or verse 17 and quick reference and pass on later on in the uh, message. So listen to these words very carefully. We want to uh, talk this morning about the wonders of heaven. The wonders of heaven. Uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word please? Revelation 21 uh, beginning in verse 9. And we'll read down through verse 5 of chapter 22 and then later on in the context of the message we'll read the remaining part of chapter 22. John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, twelve thousand stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubics, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean ever will enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Father, we're so grateful for what we read here and in other places in the Scripture about heaven. We think of Peter's words in 1 Peter 1, that you are reserving for your children a great inheritance that will never fade in its beauty or diminish in its glory. In fact, after we've been there 10,000 years, it'll be just as glorious and majestic as the very first day that we see it. And the Bible says it is being kept in heaven for us. And the saints of God are being kept until that day. Father, we thank you that you sent your Son to be our Savior, that we could be reconciled to you, that we could have a home in heaven with you. And I pray that for those who are walking through valleys and darkness and trial and tribulation, that you would help them to keep their focus on their future inheritance, that they would persevere. And Lord, for the one that does not know Christ, that is in danger of missing out on everything that we've just read, I pray that your Holy Spirit would prick their hearts, bring conviction of their sin, and draw them to faith in Christ, that they too may be a part of that great heavenly chorus. Father, be with the preaching of your word. Grant us understanding today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book on heaven, Randy Alcorn records the following story. In 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off of the coast of Catalina Island. She was determined to swim all the way from the island to the shores of the mainland of California. Now she had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in the boat alongside told her that she was close and she simply needed to push through it all and persevere. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was 
on board the boat that she discovered that her destination, the shoreline, was less than a half mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see at the moment was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I could have made it. Now think about those words. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Folks, think with me this morning about the grace of God in telling us about the shore. In other words, telling us about our final destination. As believers, we walk through a world that is part of the creation that has been subjected to the fall. We see evil and sin and we experience trials and tribulations and sometimes it seems like these issues may never be fully resolved. It can be like swimming in a fog. But then God gives us a glimpse of the end in the final chapters of the Bible. Now last week we started talking about heaven. We saw that heaven is a real place. It is a place where the saints of God will enjoy God's presence forever and ever. It is a place and a time where there will be no more pain. And lest one thinks that all of that sounds may be too good to be true, John reminds us that we have all of these assurances as the promise of God. We serve a God who cannot lie. And He has promised to us eternal life. Now folks, James 4 says that life is but a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. And so we need to heed the words of the prophet Amos who said, prepare to meet your God. Well, the Bible tells us through repentance of our sins and faith in the Lord Jesus, our names are written in the Lamb's book of life and we have a home in heaven where we will be for all of eternity. We need to think perhaps more often about our eternal home. As J.C. Ryle wrote many years ago, he said the man who is about to sail for Australia or New Zealand uh, as a settler is naturally anxious to know something about his future home, its climate, its employments, its inhabitants, and its customs. All these are subjects of deep interest to him. You're leaving the land of your nativity. You're going to spend the rest of your life in a new hemisphere. It would be strange indeed if you did not desire information about your new abode. Riles went on to say, Now surely if we hope to dwell forever in that better country, even a heavenly one, we ought to seek all the knowledge we can get about it. Before we go to our eternal home, we should try to acquaint ourselves with it. And that's exactly what the Bible does. It acquaints us with what we have to look forward to. It speaks of heaven in these final two chapters in the Bible. Now folks, in these last two chapters of the Bible, what we find is hope. 
If we are swimming through the fog, if we're going through valleys and darkness and trials and tribulations, we are given hope that we might persevere, that one day we might stand before Jesus and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so hopefully these last two chapters will provide that encouragement to persevere. And as I mentioned last week, if there's anybody who does not know Christ, you're in great danger of missing out on this heavenly inheritance. Hopefully these words would motivate you that you would want to seek salvation. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me this morning beginning in verse 9 is the beauty of heaven. The beauty of heaven. John hears these words, come I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now Jerusalem has always been at the very heart and center of God's people. You'll recall in the Old Testament under King David, Jerusalem became their capital. And here John sees the new Jerusalem. Now in the last four chapters of the Bible, what we have being contrasted are two different cities. In chapter 17 and 18, we were being told about Babylon and the destruction of Babylon. Babylon is a place associated in the Bible with all things that are opposed to God. And Babylon was destroyed in chapter 17 and 18. It was a city filled with violence and vileness and immorality. And just utter rebellion against God. And we read there in chapter 18 how God finally brought Babylon to an end. But now by way of contrast, now we're introduced to the new Jerusalem. It is the capital of the new heavens and the new earth. I suppose that would be perhaps the, the best way to think about it. And as John sees it coming down out of heaven, uh, what he's going to talk about when he begins describing all the beauty of the new Jerusalem, keep in mind he's just describing that heavenly city. Now obviously he's not talking in other words about all of our heavenly abode, but just the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. Now heaven is described here as a place, a real place that we can all identify with. It's described in terms of a city. You can't get much more real or practical than that. Now again, I mention this to emphasize that the Bible speaks of heaven as a place. It's not an illusion. It's not a dream. It's not a figment of our imagination. Heaven is a real place. And in that real place, you and I will have real bodies. The Bible talks about the glorified body that we will be given one day. Now as John begins describing it here in verse 9, you'll notice it is a place of immense beauty. 
And he describes the city itself. It is filled with God's glory and it shines like a precious jewel and pure gold. John talks about the gates of the city. There are 12 of them, each made of solid uh, pearl and guarded by 12 angels. And the gates are made not only of solid pearl, but they are made of a single pearl. And I think that's fitting because a pearl, while it's a thing of such magnificent beauty, we know that a, a pearl comes from pain. Something like a grain of sand gets in that oyster shell and out of that pain comes this beautiful pearl. And what a great description of the new Jerusalem and, and these gates being like a pearl because we're reminded that this immense beauty comes out of something of pain. Namely, Calvary's cross. Now on the gates are the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. Now that says to me that God knows those who are His. And it also points out that the great redemption story in the Bible began with a specific people. It began with the Jews. God called Abram to leave his father's land and go to a new land. God gave him a new name, Abraham, and his wife a new name, Sarah. And God built a nation out of them. God built the Jewish nation. Then they went down into slavery in Egypt. God called them out of Egypt, sent them to the promised land, gave them uh, the covenants and the commandments, and eventually the Messiah, as far as his humanity, that is, Jesus Fully divine, fully human. As far as his humanity, he was a Jew. We owe the Jews so much. That's why Paul says in Romans 9 and 10 that he weeps for those that have not come to a, a saving knowledge of Christ. Because our heritage... In New Testament times as the church, as Christians, it's built on that foundation that was laid in the Old Testament. And it's one complete redemption story. Now we're told in the Bible that a complete number of Jews are going to be saved. They're not going to be saved some other way other than Gentiles. It's the same way as us, through faith. Even in the Old Testament, their salvation was through faith. It wasn't through a mere adherence to the law. They looked forward to that perfect sacrifice. God was going to one day make it Calvary. We look back to it. But we're all saved the same way, through faith. And Paul in Romans 9-11 through 11 says God is going to do something at the end of the times of the Gentiles that is going to stir the Jew to jealousy and so a complete number of Israel is going to be saved. They're going to come to Christ. And so we see here that the gates here in heaven have the names of the twelve tribes of Israel reminding us about our heritage. And all the Old Testament saints. 
And then the walls that he describes in verse 14 and 18. The walls are made of jasper supported by 12 foundations on which are the names of the 12 apostles. And so again in heaven we'll see the connection between both covenants, the Old and the New Covenant, or both Testaments, the Old and and New Testament. And again it is emphasized to us that the Bible is one redemption story with one main character, the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ and again we take great comfort in that God knows his own these these, uh, tribes and these apostles their labor in the Lord was not in vain and your labor and my labor in the Lord is not in vain and that's why 1 Corinthians 15.58 says we need to be steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that our work in the Lord is not in vain beginning in verse 15 he gives the size and the dimensions Again, I want to remind you, he's not talking about the whole span of the new heavens and the new earth. He's talking about the new Jerusalem here. And it is a perfect cube, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. Just the length and the width would be like going from Maine down to Florida and all the way over to the Rocky Mountains. And that doesn't even factor in the height. It reminds me of Jesus' words, in my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places. The size of it is being emphasized, the enormity of it all, and the emphasis there is there's plenty of room for all of those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Heaven isn't going to be some place where we're all cramped up together, living on top of one another. There is plenty of room for every child of God who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and is born again. Verse 25 says, The gates of the city will never be closed. In ancient times, it would get nighttime. They would close the gates of the city and have watchmen on the wall and tall walls and gates. They would close those. It was a protection thing so that enemies could not come in during the night and raid them. Well, danger's not going to be an issue in heaven. And so the gates remain open. And so we'll be able to go in and out of the heavenly city And we can assume, explore the rest of the the new heavens and the new earth. Beginning in verse 19, he talks about the foundations. Each is inlaid with a precious jewel. Now imagine the brilliance of all this. In addition to the enormity of it, what's being highlighted for us here is, is the immense beauty of it all. In fact, in verse 21, we're told the streets are paved with pure gold. So what's precious to us down here is just paving material up there. Now when we start talking about heaven, you know probably the number one question I'll get asked, usually by children or their parents who want to know what to tell them. You know what it is, right? Are there going to be animals up there? Are there going to be animals up there? Probably the 
a question I get as much as anything, and so I'll address it, even though it's not talked about in the text here. Uh, I'm going to give you an answer that is as fine a job of straddling the fence as you'll ever hear. (laughs) The answer to that, are they going to be there? Probably so, but maybe not. (laughs) Let me first of all say that there's no direct evidence I can find in the Word of God that there'll be animals in heaven. We know that at creation, God breathed a living soul into the man, not into the animal world. Animals do not have a soul, and so it would appear that when they die, they die. They simply cease to exist. At the same time, let me say that while your pet growing up will most likely not be waiting for you on the other side, it would not surprise me at all if God didn't have animals in heaven. And I'll tell you why I say that. We see that God is so varied in His creation. At creation, he created beautiful things. He created the animal life, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the the beast of the field. And then we read about the millennial reign of Christ. And what do we read there about the lion laying down with the lamb and, and and the wolf and the lamb dwelling together and the child playing over the, the, the opening of the, the cobra's den. Folks, I don't think in the new heavens and the new earth that that is going to be anything less than what God did in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not going to be less. So if God created the animal kingdom in Genesis 1 and 2, perhaps there might be animals in heaven. Had a seminary professor tell us one time, probably Romans chapter 8 is the best hope for Fido. Because in Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about the whole creation longing for the day of redemption. And certainly the animal kingdom is part of the whole creation that is longing for the redemption of the sons of God. Well... Let me say we can't be dogmatic about this. (laughs) While we can't be dogmatic about it, at least we need to keep our minds and hearts open to the possibility that there could be animal life in heaven. Now after talking about the beauty of heaven, I want you to notice John secondly describes the blessedness of heaven. Beginning in verse 22, he says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now, I want you to know that here John describes what he does not see. Now when he was talking about the beauty of heaven, he was describing what he did see. Now he's describing what he does not see. And he does not see the temple. 
Folks, we need to understand what's being communicated here. In the Old Testament, everywhere the children of Israel went in the wilderness, they would set up a temporary tabernacle, and then they moved, when they moved into the promised land, they ended up building the, the temple there, and the temple or the tabernacle was a sign of God's presence to them. But now in New Testament times, hopefully we realize that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's not that God simply dwells in mortar and bricks and stone. God dwells in His people. Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he uses that as justification to warn us that we, we need to be careful what we do in our everyday lives as Christians. Because if I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit, that means everywhere I go, everything I do, everything I say, I am joining Jesus to that which I am doing. And at Corinth, Corinth was a very immoral place and the Christians were saved out of that immorality and all around them they witnessed in their culture immorality everywhere just like we see in our society today. And Paul cautioned Christians not to be involved in sexual immorality because if they were, it would be like joining Jesus to a prostitute. Would you want to do that? Obviously not. But the point is, God dwells in us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. In heaven, it's going to be so apparent that God is in our midst. We won't need a temple or a church. Heaven itself is going to be like church. Now again, for the Christian, that's how we ought to be living now. The world is to be like one big church to us. We're not to be one way in here and then another way out there tomorrow. He says there's no need of the sun. God's glory is going to be our light. Imagine the glory of God being so great that the sun is not even needed. I think of Acts 9. The conversion of Rabbi Saul, where Rabbi Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. He's on the road to Damascus. It's noon. Brightest light of the day, brightest sun of the day. But when Jesus appeared to Paul, Paul was blinded by the great light. It was a light that, that outshined all other lights and, and he was blinded by it. Now folks, imagine the glory of God being so great that the sun would not even be needed. And again, no closed gates, verse 27, no impurity or evil, no crime, no fear, no locks. Now as we cross into chapter 22, John's description of the blessedness of heaven continues. In verse 1, we see a river flowing from the throne of God. Now remember folks, many in John's day were acquainted with the desert to the south and east of the Holy Land and also to the southwest. And so a perpetual source of water would have called up visions of never-ending provision in the physical sense. But then in the Gospel of John, Jesus spoke of water in a spiritual sense. Remember what he said to the woman at the well? He told her, you draw of this water right here and guess what? You're going to need to come back and draw from it again and keep drawing from it. 
But if you'll drink of the water that I give you, you shall never thirst again. He said, I'll be like an artesian well springing up from within. What he was talking about there is this satisfaction that only he can bring. Maybe you've been to a youth camp before, some kind of retreat, some kind of spiritual high that you got on. And everybody in the group got on this spiritual high. And man, you just kind of came back walking on cloud nine. You couldn't imagine that it could get any better than that. Well, probably after a few days or weeks, that emotional high, at least, began to diminish some. But can you imagine being in that place in God's presence with all the children of God where that deep satisfaction at the very core of your being never diminishes one bit? It's rich and new every day. That's what he's describing here. Then John sees the tree of life on both sides of the river. The both sides being lined with the tree of life. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2 we saw the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And initially Adam and Eve could eat of the tree of life but not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Once they ate, once they sinned and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they were banned from being able to eat of the tree of life. But now that privilege is reinstated. It's reinstated. We're told that there's going to be 12 different kinds of fruit that these trees bear. It's an image of the great variety that we're going to see in heaven. Folks, heaven is not going to be a place that is humdrum and and mundane and, you know, kind of like the children of Israel uh, out in the wilderness. Honey, what's for breakfast? Manna. What's for lunch? Manna. What's for supper? Manna. I want a bedtime snack. Okay, get you some more manna. Can we have something different tomorrow? No, menu's the same tomorrow. But I tell you what, heaven's not going to be that way. Great variety. Nothing about heaven is going to be dull. Now, may I add that the fruit along with the leaves in verse 2 has certainly caused, as you can imagine, caused some discussion. Does this mean that we must eat and we must utilize the leaves in order to survive and to be healthy? No. Eternal life and perfect health have already been given to us in our resurrection bodies, as chapter 21 pointed out. There's no more sickness, no more pain, no more death. Even the word healing here, the healing of the nations, gives us a clue. It's actually talking about something that is therapeutic, not necessary. And so in other words, these are things for our enjoyment, not our survival. It's like Jesus after the resurrection. When he appeared to his disciples in the upper room. And he, and he ate to show them that he had a physical body. Apparently he didn't, he didn't have to eat to live, but he could. Apparently that's what's going on here. And the throne of God will be at the very center of heaven in terms of focus. And he points out that we will serve him. Folks, think of serving God without any kind of limitations whatsoever. We serve God now with limitations. We get tired. We get burned out. You might get discouraged, but not then. 
And plus, all of this reminds us that we're not going to be floating around on clouds sipping lemonade and playing harps for all of eternity and taking long naps. How dull and boring that would be. We're going to be serving. Heaven is going to be a place of continual discovery and service and Worship and activity and enrichment. The idea of one long, never-ending Sunday morning worship service is not accurate. Aren't some of you glad of that? We're going to see God's face. Moses wasn't allowed to do that. But, but, we, but we will be. His name will be in our foreheads, which is a statement of possession. And God's seal will be on us. And we will reign with Christ. The Bible says here we're going to rule and reign with Him. In other words, the activity, the service that we do, the responsibilities that we have, it's not going to be grunt work or busy work. It's going to be meaningful. We're going to rule and reign with Christ. Well, thirdly, I want you to notice with me the benediction. The benediction. From verse 6 to the end of chapter 22 is, is really the last benediction, if you will, in the Bible. Last words. He said to me, these words, now listen carefully because we're going we're to go through this pretty fast. These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Folks, these are last words. The last words of God to His church in the canon of Scripture. I want you to think with me a minute about the importance of last words. 
If you've ever been gathered around loved ones on their deathbed, you know how important last words are. I think of the last words of the Apostle Paul to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 where he said, Timothy, preach the word, be instant in season and out of season. Last words are so very important and these are the last words of God to his church. And John is told not to seal up the words of this prophecy. These words, in other words, are to be open and available to the churches and are to be read to the churches. The book of Revelation, when you go back and you get the whole picture of the book of Revelation in your mind again, uh, you see that overall it's a tremendous encouragement to the saints because we see that in the end he wins and he shares his victory with us a great encouragement and so rather than avoiding this book the way so many do uh, John is told leave the words of this prophecy unsealed so they can be utilized and and be a great encouragement to the saints of God verse 7 we see that we're to heed and obey the words of this prophecy now verse 11 granted has puzzled some folks but it's just a reminder of the urgency of the hour You see, ever since the first advent of Christ, we've been in the last days. And so surely by now we must be at the end of the end. The hour is so late and the time is so urgent that if the one who ignores the message of this book continues to ignore it, there's no hope for him at any moment. It's like he's saying at any moment it could all come to an end so fast. You might as well just keep doing what you're doing right now because it could all be over in the next second. But the point is of verse 11 that the saints need to persevere. Rather than being a statement of fatalism, it's a statement of perseverance. Verse 12 reminds us to live in holiness, that God's going to reward faithfulness. And in this benediction, you'll notice we get one more last great invitation. Folks, the gospel is both gift and demand. It demands a response. Like Isaiah 55, that great invitation, come to the waters and drink without money and without price. This is a great invitation. The Spirit says, come. If you don't know Christ, come to Him. What's the Spirit's role? The Spirit is the one who convicts us of our sin and draws us to Jesus Christ. And so it's like the Holy Spirit is saying to the lost man, hey, listen up, wake up, come before it's too late. The bride. Who's the bride? That's us. We're to join in that course with the Holy Spirit saying to the lost, come, anybody for that matter who hears and responds needs to join this course and say, come. As Randy Alcorn writes in his book on heaven, heaven is not our default destination. That's why this invitation is so important. Heaven is not our default destination. 
in surveys for every one person in America who says they're going to hell, there are 120 who say they're going to heaven. And as Alcorn writes, this optimism stands in stark contrast to Christ's words in Matthew 7 where he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You see, you've got to come to Christ in repentance and faith. Have you done so? Well, if not, you should not think that somehow or another God's going to make an exception for you. You've got to respond to this invitation. Heaven is for those who have responded and for those who were born again. Now, verses 18 and 19, strong words about adding to or taking away from the Scripture. What do the cults love to do? The cults love to knock on your door and in addition to the Bible, they want to say, oh, but here is another book that you need. Beware of anybody who comes to you saying that the scripture is not sufficient and who says, oh, you need another book. Beware. And for decades... Liberalism, theological liberalism has been famous for taking away. Saying, oh, this is what it says. But this isn't really what that means. You can ignore this. And so he warns here that we dare not dabble with the word of God or add to it or take away. In verse 20, he says... I'm coming quickly. There are two ways to understand that. Remember in the mind and the heart of God a thousand years or like one day. He could be talking about that in 2,000 years of church history. I tell you what, that's not much time in God's mind. Or it could mean that once these things begin to unfold, they're going to happen quickly. Very quickly. Either way, it's a warning that you and I need to be prepared. Don't be like the five foolish virgins in Matthew 25 who were not ready. I think verse 20, John expresses the sentiment of every true child of God. Come quickly. You ever feel like that as we walk through this world? Lord Jesus, come quickly. It sure would be nice if you came back for your bride today. Verse 21 of Revelation closes on the note of grace. How fitting. In the Old Testament we had the law. And the statements that those who live under the law are under a curse. But in the New Testament Jesus Christ has taken the curse of the law away. And given us life. And so while one testament ends with the law and curse, the New Testament ends with life and peace and grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me, I once was lost but now am found, was blind but now I see. Have you experienced that grace? 
So today we close our series on the book of Revelation. Jonathan Edwards, that great Puritan preacher, often spoke of heaven. He said, it becomes us to spend this life as a journey toward heaven to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Is that your ultimate hope this morning? If so, listen again to Edwards. He said, resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolve to endeavor to my utmost to act as I think I should do if I would already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. To live as, as, as if I would already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. I want you to understand today that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. You don't end up going there by accident. Jesus said, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever been born again? If not... I would beg of you to come forward this morning and pray with me, one of our pastoral staff. We'd love to counsel with you further on this, what the Scripture says about being a Christian and being born again from above. Come and let us pray with you about that. If you've already made that decision, but you've gotten bogged down, discouraged, walking in this world of trial and tribulation maybe you just need to come to this altar this morning and say God considering everything you have laid up in store for me help me to take my eyes off of my circumstances and help me to keep my eyes on Jesus keep me strong in the faith persevering to the end maybe you want to come and pray for those among your friends and family who do not know Christ that they would respond before it's eternally too late for them. Perhaps simply you want a church home where you can study and pray with other believers. Iron sharpens iron, the Bible says. You need the encouragement of fellow saints. If you're looking for a church home, come and talk to us about that as well.